Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. All this week on the program, we are listening back to some of the conversations we've had on our show over the past year. Today, producer Maya Beckstrom is in the studio with me uh, to share some of the shows that really stood out to her over the past year. Maya, it's just sort of a blur. Good morning. It is. It is. So much. <laughs> I know. I feel like I was looking back over all the stories we've done, and it, it kind of blew me away. Right. And yeah. so many great guests, so many great calls from listeners. But we're going to start by talking about what happens on Wednesdays on this yeah. program. We like to talk about health and wellness almost every Wednesday on the show. Physical health, mental health. You picked a show today that um, that aired earlier in the fall about keeping our hearts healthy, Uh Tell me again, remind everybody why we wanted to go really deep on heart disease. I was uh, surprised by looking at a statistic that said heart disease was the number one killer of women. And I guess Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm naive, but I just I didn't know that. Um, And then started looking a little more deeply into it and was really uh, not surprised, you know, that there are racial disparities around heart disease like there are with so many health issues. And so I wanted to create a show that would dive into some of the reasons that uh, black Americans and some other groups of color are so much more likely to you know, experience heart attack, stroke, high blood mm-hmm. pressure, and then... Um, to spread the word. Spread so the word. Awareness. awareness. Exactly. Yeah, the power yeah. that comes from exactly. awareness. So remind us, uh, Maya, who will we be hearing from as we listen back to parts of the show? Well, uh, we're going to hear from Dr. La Princess Brewer. She's a cardiologist and an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And I don't know if you remember, but you know, once I found her, I, we really wanted to have her. And we had to wait like three oh, months. Yeah. For we her... rescheduled it a few times. Yeah, yes. these doctors are busy. <laughs> um, so she's going to be joining us. And her research focuses on heart disease prevention. One of the things she'll talk about a little later is an education outreach effort in several black churches in the Twin Cities and Rochester. And we're also going to hear from Dr. Courtney Jordan Beckler, and she's the medical director of health equity and health promotion at Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation at Alina Health. And she's also a cardiologist practicing with Alina. Yeah. And uh, as we listen back to the conversation, I I remember asking Dr. Beckler to explain the risk of high blood pressure. And she does that right now. High blood pressure, what that does is it puts more stress on your arteries in throughout your entire body, and then it also puts more stress on your heart because basically your heart has to work harder against higher levels of pressure. So you can almost think about it, you know, if you're thinking of water going through a garden hose, mm-hmm. if, if there's more pressure on that hose, if there's less relaxation of that hose, the water has to push harder. And our heart at a minimum usually beats 60 times a minute. You know, if our heart rate is higher, it's beating that much more. You can do the calculations that it's working really, really hard. And in this case, then that puts, that makes the muscle of the heart develop to be thicker um, because of that. And we don't want to see that over decades. That can lead to heart failure. Mm -hmm. High blood pressure can also lead to stroke. And one of the things that we see is a lot of these things are developing um, in pregnancy. This is one of the areas of research that we're actively working on. And it's really kind of the first stress test, if you will, um, for heart disease. And this is a new area of research and study of a place where we could be intervening earlier to change disparities that we see later on. So what happens in pregnancy as some women for the first time experience high blood pressure? Exactly. So what we see in pregnancy is people can get what we call 
gestational high blood pressure or high blood pressure that develops in pregnancy. We also see um, things like preeclampsia. And again, what we have found is that you're at much higher risk later of developing heart disease and the importance then in your 20s and 30s in really mitigating that risk Mm -hmm. is critical. So that was a project that we did this summer where we looked in our own population and saw, sure enough, we have upwards of two-thirds of our patient population that we haven't reduced that risk right there and then um, for generations and decades to come. And yet preeclampsia is something I also had uh, with the pregnancy of my son, something I had never heard of before, uh, but have since learned a lot more about. Uh, I know that it's rare, but it, it is has been such an education to learn how all of these things sort of tie together. And uh, Dr. Brewer, what have you found out about heart disease that maybe makes it a little bit different than some of the other conditions that it's it's very easy to talk about and that people seem to understand easily? Yeah, I guess I, I wanted to somewhat focus on um, African-American women. Mm-hmm. And I'm just very passionate about increasing awareness about heart disease in women. Um, really, only about a third of African-American women even know that heart disease is their greatest threat. And heart disease is the number one killer of African-American women. And one in two African-American women who are age 20 or older have some form of heart disease. So I've really made it my passion to increase awareness about heart disease before even treating it. And about 50,000 African-American women die annually from heart disease. So this is a huge problem within our community. So what is going on with Black women? Is it genetics? Is it the lifestyle? Why is that the case, that that, uh, Black women are much more likely to have cardiovascular disease? So the the reasons that women are are dying uh, younger, actually from heart disease, can be attributed to um, a higher burden of heart disease risk factors. I know we were talking about high blood pressure, hypertension, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, and obesity. And these risk factors are also developed in African-American women at younger ages. And as Dr. Backler mentioned, over time, these then can lead to heart disease. And African-American women are also faced with a number of unique stressors, uh, really based on the intersection of their race and gender. And they're more likely to live in poverty than white women. And we as Black women are also three to four uh, times more likely to die during pregnancy for heart-related causes. I know we were speaking about hypertension, gestational hypertension, and preeclampsia and eclampsia, Mm -hmm. but we're also just more likely to die in general during pregnancy. And, um, you know, the genetic component of this, and, you know, I shared I had preeclampsia, I currently have high blood pressure. Uh, What can you tell us about genetics? Yes, there is a, a genetic link to, you know, some of the, the risk factors, um, including, you know, high blood pressure and uh, diabetes. But I must say, all of these are modifiable um, and can be controlled with uh, lifestyle change and the right medications. Mm-hmm. So um, although they do run in families, I, I don't like to look at them as, you know, I can't do anything about them if I um, and diagnosed with these, we can get them under control and prevent you from developing heart disease. Um, Dr. Beckler, I want you to help us with some of these terms. Um, I think we're familiar with heart attack and, and what sh- uh, a stroke is, but uh, could you tell us, you know, really define it for us? Like, what is a heart attack and what is a stroke, Dr. Beckler? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, these are terms that are often thrown out and super confusing to folks. Uh, A heart attack is usually defined as a blockage in one of your coronary arteries or heart arteries. And when we think of strokes, there's two different kinds of strokes. There's strokes in our brain that come from a dilation or a hemorrhage of our artery, which is it getting bigger and dissecting. And then the more common strokes that we talk about preventing are similar to what we see in the heart arteries where we're talking about plugs or blockages in those vessels in our brain. So they have those those similarities and that they have to do with, you know, crud, cholesterol, inflammation, all those things happening in those arteries. And the signs and symptoms, how would I know uh, if I were in the early stages of having a heart attack, Dr. Beckler? Yeah. So these also, if you Google signs and symptoms of a heart attack, um, I often joke that we probably had one of them in the last week, all of us, because they're quite broad. Um, The most common thing that people experience is chest pressure. And I often think we often say, have you had chest pain? And I've even started to reframe that when I'm speaking with patients, recognizing that it's often more of this pressure elephant sitting on your chest. Some people kind of describe feeling like they're in a vice Mm -hmm. uh, and they can't catch, get some air. Um, And then some of the more atypical symptoms that are super important to recognize, but that um, you'll see on there, you know, arm pain, more common on the left, numbness in the arm, jaw pain, uh, neck pain, back pain. In women, we um, sometimes see nausea, vomiting, Um, shortness of breath. So it's very, very broad. And every once in a while, you'll see on these these lists, um, a sense of impending doom. Um, And this this feeling um, that something is horribly wrong in your body. I can't emphasize enough. And I know Dr. Brewer would agree that we want you to default if you're having any of these symptoms to getting checked out. And if you ever have a doctor dismiss you because it was a false alarm, that's not the right doctor for you. Um, you always better to err on the side of caution when it's your heart um, and make sure that there's nothing going on. Uh, I, you know, that, that happens. And, um, but much better if you're having any of those signs or symptoms, people know their body well um, mm-hmm. to say, I want to get more answers. So I want to know right. that this mm-hmm. isn't. Yes, exactly. Right. And Dr. Brewer, as I hear uh, Dr. Beckler describe the signs and symptoms of a heart attack, uh, we've also heard a lot of conversation how it can be different uh, in what women experience and what men experience. And what can you tell us about that, Dr. Brewer? Yeah, so as Dr. Beckler mentioned, um, the most common uh, symptom of a heart attack is chest pain. However, women are more likely to experience other symptoms. So the the dizziness, the the nausea, uh, the vomiting, shortness of breath, and back pain. So we have to be very mindful, you know, of our symptoms. And as Dr. Backler mentioned, don't ignore them. Seek help um, because you'd rather have a, a false alarm than you know something right. serious that could take your life. Right. And a stroke. What is a stroke? When when I like, can? How is that? Um, you know. What's going on in the body when that happens, Dr. Brewer? Yeah, so stroke is also a form of of cardiovascular disease, and it it really occurs when the blood supply to a part of the brain is cut off. 
um, from a blocked blood vessel, similar to um, you know, a heart attack where you have plaque build up in the walls of the artery. And this causes some brain cells to die. Um, and also a blood vessel can rupture or burst and, and cause bleeding in the brain as well. And this can then result in the loss of uh, function of parts of the brain that affect our speech and our movements. So similar to a heart attack, uh, time is brain. So if you experience, you know, any symptoms, you know, such as slurred speech or difficulty moving your, your limbs or facial drooping, you really need to present to get medical care at uh, your emergency department. Uh, I appreciate you, you both uh, describing these, these symptoms and signs so clearly for us. Uh, let's take a phone call uh, in Rochester from Thomas, who's calling in. Good morning, Thomas. Morning. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I was just calling in to let you guys know that I'm a black male, and and I do have high blood pressure. And my wife didn't want me to get on uh, blood pressure pills, so she went to the store and uh, purchased some uh, garlic, mm-hmm. and that brought my blood pressure way down. That helped. And, and, and so what is garlic? It's like a, a supplement, a nutritional supplement? Yeah, yeah, just like a supplement, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thomas, do you have a history of, of high blood pressure in your family? Yes, my, my late mother was a um, high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Did you do any other changes to your diet or anything else that you do, Thomas, or exercise well, I more? Pretty good, I have a pretty good diet anyway, so, but okay. you know, I don't overeat and and I don't always eat. So, <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Brewer and Dr. Beckler, let's talk about this. Uh, he's he's saying he found success in lowering his uh, high blood pressure with a supplement. Uh, have you heard of that being successful in folks, uh, Dr. Beckler? Yeah. So, a really great um, conversation, and thanks, Thomas, for calling in. So, there there are some supplements that have been shown to decrease the blood pressure um, some small amounts. That way, they're not usually as effective as the medications that we prescribe. But here's what I want to say about this. Um, we, over the last couple of years, um, particularly since George Floyd's murder, has been we've been working much more closely with our communities seeing the largest disparities, and particularly here in North Minneapolis. And what we heard over and over and over from community members is we want to know and understand what, in addition to medications and procedures, will lower our blood pressure. So because of that, we co-designed a study that we've just launched with Chance York, who's a local here, who's leading some work on um, meditation and yoga, specifically looking at blood pressure, quality of life. And where, I, where I'm trying to go with this is that I think this is one of the challenges that we're seeing with some of the disparities we have is we often go very quickly to what is evidence-based in guidelines, which is more often medications and is appropriate. But at the same time, I think we sort of need to meet people where they're at, have a information knowledge transfer both ways to say, at the end of the day, your blood pressure needs to be less than 120 on top. There's a variety of ways to get there. 
Dr. Brewer, we heard Thomas Arcaller there say his wife did not want him to take high blood pressure medication and uh, recommended, you know, a supplement instead, which he said did help him. But what are, what have you found in your research about this hesitation uh, to take medication that targets high blood pressure? Yes, I really, really appreciate, um, you know, Thomas calling mm-hmm. in and, and sharing his story about, you know, high blood pressure. I did want to mention, though, that you know, this is a major issue in Black communities. And, you know, it's it's called the silent killer because it can cause permanent damage to the heart before you even notice any symptoms. So you may feel as if, oh, you know, I don't need to take any medications. Uh, you know, I can do, you know, a supplement. But untreated high blood pressure really increases your risk of heart attack, stroke, and other serious health problems. And, you know, Black communities have the highest rates of hypertension in the world. And I want to emphasize that again. Black communities have the highest rates of hypertension in the world. So this is astounding and unacceptable. And, you know, hypertension is more severe in in Black adults than white adults. um, And it also develops earlier in life. So, you know, we have to detect it earlier and follow, you know, African-American patients closer and and start them on medications as needed. And um, I'm glad to hear that, um, you know, our callers' blood pressures were uh, under control with kind of more conservative measures. But, you know, over time, it may require medications because we, again, want to prevent, you know, heart disease from from forming. Mm. And um, I also wanted to mention that, you know, the uncontrolled hypertension is not just, you know, a patient level factor, um, you know, of like not taking your medications. It also can be due to uh, clinician related factors like, you know, inadequate treatment or not even putting uh, patients on blood pressure medications when they need to be placed on them. In St. Paul, Michael's on the phone. Good morning, Michael. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. What did you want to ask or share with us? I, I, d- I definitely agree with uh, the black population having a higher um, higher rate of heart issues and different things like that. What I've noticed is that growing up, you know, we just have different food choices and, you know, from cultural differences in, the, in uh, how we decide to interact with people and, you know, the stressors of going to work every day and just living, uh, living normal life in general is enough to, you know, put you under enough stress to, to have heart problems. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed about myself is that um, when I get real stressed out or when I'm under a lot of pressure, I either eat or I don't eat. So, like, I go through this up and down spike and I, like, ignore my health, ignore my health problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not alone in that, uh, Michael. And, and I, I should let you know, as we talk about, um, you know, black people and, and heart disease, uh, I'm a black woman, Dr. Brewer's a black woman, Dr. Beckler's a black woman. Uh, both doctors, I want to ask you, what, what role does chronic stress seem to play in increasing blood pressure and other risks for heart attack and stroke? Uh, as Michael kind of, of notes, um, you know, he has chest pains from time to time. What, what can you say to that, Dr. Beckler? So here's what I would say is that when we look at the data and we we slim down everything, so we look at education level, we look at income, all of these different things, we see that at the end of the day, there still is a disparity in outcomes for our black Americans. Um, and so we know that unfortunately, because of systemic racism and walking through this, this world with, with extra stress, this is this is real. 
Um, and I think that uh, as Dr. Brewer has shown in, in some of the research that she's done, I think the best thing that we can do is start to combat it at each level um, and through changing what we have the ability to change through knowledge, through changing the way, the way that healthcare is delivered, where it's delivered. I mean, it's a complicated process, but I think this is absolutely true. And so, Dr. Brewer, Michael talks about cultural, you know, differences and and, uh, diet and uh, maybe also, you know, weight, what we see in black communities that's different than than other communities. What role does all of that have to play in in black Americans being um, at a higher risk for heart attack and stroke? Yes, this is extremely important as, you know, culture over time, you know, we we tend to uh, follow a a traditional Southern diet or uh, a traditional uh, cuisine, which may be high in saturated fat and sodium. Um, And also there's a a culture, and I see this amongst my own family members, that, you know, heavier is better. Um, and, And you don't have to always, you know, exercise to lose weight or maintain a healthy weight. Um, And we're working uh, to change many of these cultural paradigms through some of the work that I'm doing with the African-American community. And I have a program called FAITH. um, And FAITH is an acronym that stands for Fostering African-American Improvement in Total Health. And it supports African-Americans through Black churches and improving their heart health. And our approach is unique in that, as uh, Dr. Backler said, we are meeting patients and people where they are in their communities to collaboratively come up with interventions and solutions that are really relevant to their culture and social life and environments to help promote their uh, heart health. And uh, did you, were you going to ask a question? Yeah, so you, you've been going into Black churches. And so what have you learned from the study so far? Has it been successful in helping people maybe adopt some healthier habits? Yeah, so we've we've had both uh, in-person uh, programming and that that has been delivered through mobile technologies through a smartphone app, and we've had significant improvements in heart health. So we recently published a, a clinical trial that included uh, 16 Black churches in Rochester and the Twin Cities, and we randomized churches to receive a culturally tailored smartphone app that we actually developed with African-American community members here in Minnesota. And we found that those who complete our 10-week heart health program on the app had significant improvements in their overall heart health scores as Mm -hmm. defined by the American Heart Association. And they were more physically active and they were eating healthier. So it really shows the power of partnering with community members to promote heart health as it builds a culture of health within the community. And then they're able to share their stories with others. And so having having those conversations can be really impactful, more than a, a study coming out saying, do this. Uh, if you know yes. someone who's seen a change. <laughs> Back to the phone lines in Rochester. We've got Doug on the phone. Good morning, Doug. What do you want to tell us? Good morning. I uh, significantly lowered my blood pressure um, through diet. I gave up uh, meat, dairy, and eggs about three years ago, Ooh. and it really did help. Um, went from about uh, 170 over 90 down to uh, 116 over uh, 67. Uh, at my last uh, blood donation. So uh, the blood pressure has been very good. Um, I, a little bit of exercise, too. Uh, you know, I walk about three miles a day. So uh, That's great, Doug. Uh, Thank you yeah, for sharing that. Doug in Rochester uh, was able to bring his blood pressure down through diet change and a little bit more exercise. And is that a, a story you hear uh, often, Dr. Beckler? 
sure is. So I specialize in prevention, and a lot of patients come to see me to look at things holistically. Hands down, the vegetarian or vegan diet, the Mediterranean diet, and the anti-inflammatory diet all have great data showing reduction um, in blood pressure. And he gave us his numbers, and I forgot to ask, what's the good number? What's the goal when we have our blood pressure checked? What do we want to see as that top number and bottom number? Yeah, we want the top number to be less than 120. That's called the systolic. And then we want that bottom number to be less than 80. That's the diastolic. So anything higher than that really does start to put stress on our heart on our blood vessels. And we do see, you know, if you look through our medical records, there's a lot of people walking around with 130s, 135s. And, that, you know, they folks just kind of sit there for a while with those blood pressures. And um, again, we need to be intervening earlier. And like we said, lifestyle has a huge role and there's a lot of opportunity there. But if we can't get it controlled with that, that's when it is time for something mm-hmm. else. That was Dr. Courtney Jordan-Beckler. She's the medical director of health equity and health promotion at the Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation at Alina Health. She's also a cardiologist practicing with Alina. And we also heard from Dr. LaPrincess Brewer, a cardiologist and an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. This week, we are hearing from our show's producers and revisiting some of our favorite shows from 2022. Today, Maya is joining me to talk about some of her best conversations from the past year, uh, ideas and, and shows that you helped select the guests and, and, and wanted to make sure got on the air. Let's talk about the next show that stands out to you, Maya. Well, this show was pretty self-serving. Um, <laughs> as you, <laughs> well, it's about the news business. So um, oh. as you know, I was a reporter for a long time, a print reporter, and now I'm a producer and I listen to tons of news. I read tons of news, local news, national mm-hmm. news. And um, we've talked about this, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming. Um, sometimes with a lot of the hard news that we are, are taking in, it can affect our own moods. It can be depressing. And so this last summer, I read an opinion piece in the Washington Post by a journalist uh, named Amanda Ripley called, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't stopped reading the news, but a lot of what she said resonated with, right. with me. So besides me throwing a tantrum about being <laughs> upset about reading so much of the news and so much yeah. of the news being sad and, and making me feel depressed at times, you know, how did you think about shaping a talk show? Like, what w- what was your guidance yeah. for how we, you know, pick the guest and sort of the flow of this conversation? Well, I knew I wanted to have her on. Um, and sometimes, you know, when we think about guests, we try to get people. It, it's hard to find this sort of double expertise, but somebody who has like personal experience they can talk about, but at the same time has a real general broad knowledge. And so she was kind of a perfect guest because she could talk about her own personal experiences, but she's also in the business and could talk broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, we often book a national guest and. Uh, but when we do that, we absolutely also want to have Minnesota voices. So we found a, a professor here at the University of Minnesota to join us. Um, his name is Benjamin Toff, and he's an assistant professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication here at the University of Minnesota. He's also a senior research fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford in England. And he studies uh, how mm-hmm. people's trust in news is changing and why a lot of people are actually avoiding the news. A great combination. Uh, let's take a listen to this conversation. One of the best parts of my job as a journalist was that I could read the news and call it work. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like that was a legitimate way (laughs) to pass the time. So I've been a journalist for two decades and I used to spend hours every morning reading multiple newspapers. Uh, In my office at Time Magazine, I had, I often had my TV playing CNN on mute. Uh, I listened to NPR in the shower and, you know, I actually enjoyed it. So when I'd go on vacation, I'd go out of my way to still do these things. Um, and it, it felt like on the one hand, it felt like my duty to be informed as a citizen and obviously as a journalist. Yes. But also, you know, I, I kind of loved it. You know, I usually, it made me feel more curious, not less at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And I can relate to that, that curiosity, you, you feel more equipped uh, to, you know, even be more curious and try to look for answers and have a better understanding, which would, in, in, you know, then help make you become, you know, a better journalist. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was like this way to feel like you were part of something bigger, to feel like you were always learning. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe half a dozen years ago, uh, very slowly, almost too gradually <laughs> to notice, I started feeling like the news was getting under my skin. Um, you know, after my morning reading, I'd feel so drained that I had trouble writing or doing anything creative, which I really had to do for my job. Uh, I just felt kind of lethargic, unmotivated, uh, and the day had barely begun. So, you know, I started shifting when I consumed news. You know, I'd wait till lunchtime and then it was like late afternoon and then it was, you know, after dark, like a vampire. You know? <laughs> it was like I was just experimenting with what would allow me to have enough optimism, energy, and agency to do the things I needed to do as a parent, as a journalist, as a human. Uh, and then I could like, you know, immerse myself in the misery of the news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because getting your news at the beginning of the day, which makes sense, uh, but it, it, it can also make you start your day in a, a, in a mode of where well, you're worrying. Yeah. And you kind of feel like, what's the point? the news was everywhere. Like it's like aerosolized now, right? Like you can't contain it to part of your day because you, every time you open your phone, every time you, uh, you know, turn the corner, it ambushes you. And so, you know, like a lot of people, I started to try to dose the news. I cut out TV news altogether. Um, And why TV news that you cut that out? (laughs) So, uh, you know, there are important exceptions to this, as you know, right? Um, but in general, I find that a lot of TV news is, I mean, you know, TV is a more emotional medium. That's part of its power. Right? Power of like video, just, right? The yeah. images. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do things with video you could just never yes. do in print. I used to cover disasters. And, you know, for decades, we've known that the more people watch footage of terrible, catastrophic things happening, even if they're very far away, Um, the more they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and other things, even to the degree that sometimes they suffer as much or more than the people who were directly impacted Mm -hmm. by disaster. I'm thinking here of research into the Boston Marathon bombing, into 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing, especially kids. Like, so, you know, for anyone listening, make sure your kids don't watch TV news footage of terrible things because kids have no way to understand that you know, when you see the Twin Towers collapse on TV over and over again, it's not happening over and over again. It's the same thing, right? Over mm-hmm. and over again. 
Uh, and that's true for police shootings, all kinds of things. So so in general, <laughs> TV well, news is not good for your health. I, I am relating to you very heavily on many of these points. And I, I'm going to pause you there for a moment because I, I want to bring in our other guest, uh, Benjamin, who's a journalism professor who's sitting here with me in the studio. Benjamin, does, does this sound familiar to you, uh, what Amanda is describing in her consumption habits and then now uh, avoidance habits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it both both as on a personal level, it sounds familiar. I, I can empathize with a lot of what she's describing. And, and some of uh, I had some similar experiences myself um, when I made the transition from um, being a working journalist to being uh, an academic and going to graduate school. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I've been interviewing uh, news avoiders or people sort of extreme news avoiders, people who consume almost no news at all for um, several years now. And um, many of the things that Amanda is saying uh, align very much with the kinds of things that, that those individuals have, have told me and, and, and my collaborators on that project. Um, I've worked with somebody in the UK and somebody in Spain as well on, on studying news avoidance. What are the reasons people give to you about why they chose to start avoiding the news? What was the turning point for them or what was happening that they felt that was necessary? Sure. So a combination of things. I mean, it's it's not any single thing. Um, and there are different types of news avoidance as well, I should say. You know, um, we're talking a lot about news avoidance among people who actually consume quite a bit of news. Um, and they're sort of finding that they're just consuming too much. They're find, trying to find ways of screening out all the news that they uh, feel like they're coming in contact with inadvertently, incidentally, as they're trying to go about their day. There's another form of news avoidance, which um, we focus a lot on as well, which were people who really consume almost no news at all, but they didn't necessarily think of themselves as actively avoiding it. They didn't really grow up in families in which um, people talked about the news all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't the same kind of strong sense of civic duty that it was important to pay attention to news. And so they didn't really see much of a point to doing so. Both of these groups would talk about how news made them feel depressed, too much doom and gloom. Uh, they felt like they're, it, it ultimately didn't matter whether they paid attention to news because what could they really do about any of these horrible things that they were um, encountering uh, on television or, or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., when we interviewed people, there were a segment of these, of these individuals who really talked a lot more about um, a sense that news was not trustworthy, that it was biased and ideologically uh, on the other side from them. And you have shifted your research from focusing on news avoidance now to trust in news. Yeah, it's a separate project, but um, very much uh, a lot of overlap. One of the things that is a strong predictor of trust in news is is, um, accessing news more frequently. Uh, In St. Cloud, we have Liz on the line. Good morning, Liz. And what do you want to share with us? Yeah, I've I felt a lot of fatigue during the pandemic. Um, uh, Well, I'm a social studies teacher, so I really take uh, make an effort to stay on top of the news. And um, it's been overwhelming. So my strategy has been to just eliminate 24 hour news. You know, I don't partake of any of the kind of 24 hour breaking type news cycle, because I think that just really ratchets up emotions. And I also uh, when we teach news literacy, what we want students to understand is that news and events take time to break, and you need to be patient. You, you can't trust everything that's just coming out immediately. And, you know, first, eyewitness accounts, you know, everything can be flawed. You have to really take time for truth. That's one part. The other piece is you have to have a variety of sources that you're pulling from. 
And just pulling from your news feed or your, you know, your feed in, in TikTok or whatever sort of social media you have isn't what I'm talking about. You know, you have mm-hmm. to actively seek out investigative journalism. You know, you have to, you have to invest in good news sources. You know, students mm-hmm. oftentimes roll their eyes at me, but when there is breaking news, and when we talk about something that's happening and we keep talking about it in class and we see how the news around it has shifted, they sort of start to feel that that's true. You have to... How the developments, really, how a story can change yeah. and you get more information and, and it's yeah. not what it first appeared to be. Liz, may I ask yeah. you, you said you're a social studies teacher. What grade yeah. or how old are your the students? Juniors and seniors. Liz, thank you for, uh, for calling in. Let's take another phone call in Minneapolis. Robert is on the line. Uh, Robert, go ahead. We can hear you. Uh, what did you want to share with us? Good, good morning. Hi. Um, you know, for me, the I've been kind of avoiding news for, for years. And part of it is that with the advent of that 24-hour news cycle, if there isn't actual things happening, then we rehash the same thing over and over again. And two things happen. One, you're not getting any new information, and it does have an emotional pull. And number two, inevitably, you are going to build in bias because the people delivering that material over and over and over again eventually have to say something, and they're just going to start saying what they think. You know, whether it's CNN or Fox or wherever, um, running constantly, it just it's, it's not productive for me. It doesn't provide me what I need from news, and it provides me a lot of what I don't need. Mm-hmm. That 24-hour that constant flow of news, uh, it can be hard to avoid. It, it uh, Maybe if you're not even seeking out the news, it just comes at you. <laughs> uh, Amanda, what do you hear in some of the, the, the folks who just called in, those, those two uh, listeners who just shared what, what they're experiencing with news fatigue? Yeah, I love hearing how people manage this. I mean, one of the great things about, you know, confessing this to the world uh, is that I've been hearing from a lot of people like Robert and Liz. For some people, it's like a total fast, like news fasting, like you're really consuming almost no news. And then for other people, and I think this is kind of where I would land, it's more like you're dieting, <laughs> like you're tr- constantly trying to be very selective about what you take in. And it's, it's, it's kind of exhausting right now. Um, and I think a lot of this is on us as journalists, not all of it, but I think a lot of it is that we need to evolve what journalism is and does to take into account what humans need today and also what we know about human psychology. So I think that is something that gives me a lot of hope because, you know, Robert put it nicely when he said, you know, what I need from the news and what I don't need from the news. And and I think it's it's really a good time to ask ourselves as journalists and as readers or listeners, what do we want the news to do? That was a conversation I had earlier this year about why more people are avoiding the news and why that matters. Our guests included Benjamin Toth, an assistant professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Benjamin is also a senior research fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford in England. Also, our guest, Amanda Ripley. Amanda is a journalist, a book author, and the host of the Slate podcast, How To. She wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post that caught our attention. It was called, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? I'm talking with show producer Maya Beckstrom about some of the shows that really stand out to her uh, in 2022 that she produced. Maya, what have you picked next for us to listen back to? Well, one of the things that Amanda said, you know, later in the conversation that we didn't get to listen to that really stuck with me was what people need 
when they take in news about the world around them. And they need and want to hear hope. They want a sense that they can do something about a problem if they're hearing about something that's really distressing, sort of a, a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And they want to know, like, why a topic is relevant to them. Why should they care? So, you know, you know, we have a team meeting every day where we're talking about kind of how to pick shows, how to frame them. Um, and we've been talking a lot about issues of education this year. We know that students really struggled during the pandemic with their mental health and also their learning was so disrupted by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The focus. Um, yep. Yeah. And this can get really distressing and sort of feel like, okay, what do we what do we do about this? So this next thing that we're going to listen to, this next show is um, about one possible solution or just like one small thing that might make a difference, tutoring. A big thing. A big thing. Make yeah. a big difference, tutoring, because yeah. we like always to be solutions oriented. I love this show about tutoring. Yeah. Um, and, and how did you... What were you hoping it would do? What did you think our listeners would get from this? I hope that people would get a better sense of kind of what we're up against, you know, that there really is this maybe, I don't know, a crisis is overused. But we're in this sort of moment when um, I think... A turning point. It's a turning point. Right. Things are, things are tough. So mm-hmm. I wanted people to, to, to understand that better, but also to have a sense of like, hey, maybe there's something that they could do either right now in their life if they have time or maybe down the road they could tutor or they could tell a friend about it. As an individual, yep. what can we each do? And who will we hear from as we talk about tutoring? We're going to hear from Brooke Rivers. She's the executive director of Reading Partners Twin Cities. And this fall, the group placed trained volunteer reading tutors in eight elementary schools in the Twin Cities. And we'll also hear from Lisa Clarkson. She's an associate professor of math education in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Minnesota. And she founded a math tutoring program called Prepare to Inspire, Mm -hmm. uh, where eighth graders get tutored by high school students. All right. Well, let's listen back to part of that conversation. We started by talking about the impact of the pandemic on students. Uh, The pandemic affected every student, really, um, and really exacerbated inequities that we see between students of color and white students. And so does that now give you a sense of urgency? Absolutely. This is Mm -hmm. a, you know, pull the alarm uh, kind of moment for us. You know, there there is urgency. We we can't let this gap continue. Um, And uh, there's a lot of need in our community and and in our schools. And so... um, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. We know some things about what works. Uh, Lisa, what impact have you seen the pandemic have on children and learning? Well, one of the major um, factors that we have seen is not just being behind, but just um, this gap in, in student confidence as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're missing a set of basic skills that you're supposed to know in order to achieve at your grade level, then all of a sudden that gap becomes more of a personal gap as well. Mm-hmm. And and Lisa, tell me more about Prepare to Inspire. Um, it meets once a week. Tell us what you do and how you do it. This is our 10th year. It's a peer tutoring program. We have eighth graders with 11th graders with college undergrad students. And so they, they work in small learning communities at, at tables on a weekly basis. And the math that they're doing in eighth grade, which is algebra, is not just similar, but the same as the math that's expected of them in high school as 11th graders in Algebra Mm 2. And then the undergrad students are supporting them, and they can see this continuum of how the math that they're preparing for in middle school is actually going to follow them you know, up through their, their college program. Mm -hmm. So, And there's community, right? That sort of peer support and a sense of community. 
Absolutely. This, this sense of community is even stronger because when they're sitting at these tables, we name that table um, the small learning community after an underrepresented mathematician or um, scientist. So they <laughs> know who they are. And, and, and the sense of community is very clear. They eat together. They work together. Um, at the end of the tutoring program, we, we serve a meal. And so that's where that informal mentoring um, also happens. And so what evidence do we have that uh, tutoring one-on-one or in small groups, as you're describing, how do we know it works, that it makes a difference? What have you seen, Lisa? One of the things that I've seen, particularly in this program, um, because of our longevity, is is the fact that some of these students who were in the program as eighth graders and came back as, as high school students, their scores were high enough for, on their ACT because we do also help them with that that they were able to um, to enter the University of Minnesota. And in, in a couple of cases, then some of those same students who started as eighth graders came back and are now tutors in the program as well. Mm. I'd say that's really working. Mm-hmm. And, and Brooke, tell me more about reading partners and, and how it works. I said in the introduction, you're sending tutors. They just arrived this, this, this right. school year we for the fall. Yeah. Elementary schools in the Twin Cities. How does it work? What does it look like? Sure. So we recruit volunteers. We train those volunteers. Uh, and then we provide them with a research-based structured curriculum uh, to go in and actually implement uh, reading intervention with students. So they're, they're not just reading out loud to kids, uh, but they're really instructing uh, the foundational literacy skills with those students. Students get two 45-minute sessions with a reading partner. So uh, students might be working with two different volunteers uh, in the school. Um, last year, 87% of the students that we worked with met their primary literacy growth goal, which essentially means they're really starting to chip away at, at any sort of gaps that they have and really accelerate their learning. So what does this look like? Uh, the volunteer comes in and then a, a student is pulled out of class? Yes. Yep. So a teacher refers a student to reading partner. So we're really working in partnership with the school. Um, we're not coming in, throwing our elbows around, saying, you know, we have to work with these certain students. But the, the teacher is really identifying the students who would be a good fit for, for reading partners. Again, we work with kids who are up to two and a half years behind grade level. And then those students are coming to a space that we uh, create in the school. We call it a reading center. We also have a staff member in that space, though, that is acting as a coach for those tutors. And what's your understanding? Uh, you said two and a half years behind That's in correct. grade level. So for an elementary school, is that common? Uh, unfortunately, the schools that we're working with, uh, less than 50% of the students are reading at grade level, and there are more kids referred to reading partners than we can actually serve. Here in the Twin Cities, we've got Lori on the line. And Lori, what did you want to share with us about uh, tutoring? Uh, yes, I am actually a volunteer tutor with reading partners. Oh, okay. And I started last year, was my first year working with them, and, and it was it's such a great experience. I just got a new student uh, last week and that I'll be working with this year. And What grade is uh, the student in? Uh, first grade. Okay. And, oh, wow. So how does what's the plan? How will this work? So I come in, I, I volunteer one hour a week. I come in one hour a week, and the Reading Partners has a, a plan that I that I work with the students, so I don't have to, you know, figure it out for myself. And, you know, I read aloud to the student, the student gets the opportunity to read aloud to me, and we work on basic reading skills that, that they're missing. And why did you want to do this, Laurie? Um, for me, the biggest reason is that I love to read. I've always been able to read, and reading gives me so much pleasure, and it's it's a basic skill that you need in the world. And to be able to help kids learn to love reading and learn to to be better at it is 
very rewarding for me. Mm-hmm. And you've met your first grader. You've met her once? Yes, last week I met her for the first time. And then what, like, how would you describe, you know, your interaction? Was she excited to see you or was she like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> she, she was, she was uh, excited. We were both kind of, kind of we, it was kind of a get to know session. So we right. spent some time getting to know each other. And um, I think it went fairly well. So I think she was excited when she left. And, and I'll be seeing her uh, this week and hopefully she'll be ready to, mm-hmm. to jump in and learn. We've been listening back to a conversation I had earlier this fall about the power of tutoring. Our guests included Brooke Rivers, the executive director of Reading Partners Twin Cities. And that group places trained volunteer reading tutors in eight elementary schools across the Twin Cities. We also heard from Lisa Clarkson, an associate professor of math education in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Minnesota. She's the founder of the math tutoring program, Prepare to Inspire. That's a small program for eighth graders. Uh, They meet weekly in North Minneapolis. So, Maya, our time is up for today, but I know you're already thinking, planning, plotting for 2023. What's on your list of uh, your must must hear shows? What are you hoping to uh, tackle in 2023? Yeah, um, lots of ideas, but uh, one of them is around. I guess you know a lot of us are thinking about New Year, New Year, New Year's resolutions. Um, So, I want to do something about behavior change. Um, a lot of our shows have to do with, you know, we've been talking about you know, some of the, the the problems and challenges that are facing us. And we need new approaches. And we need new approaches. So um, I, I want to bring in some folks who maybe study behavioral science, um, can really talk about how do we change? You know, or what resist makes, change. How, you know, why we resist change. How, how do, do we, we embrace ad- it? How do we embrace it? How do we make it happen? And, and how do we uh, react to it when it's like forced on us? So mm-hmm. this idea of like handling change I love it. A little better. I love it. I love it all. Thank you. I love working with you. We've been talking this hour with Maya Beckstrom, one of the show producers who I work closely with here for the 9 a.m. show. And uh, thank you for all of your ideas and your creativity and all that uh, all that great brain work you do oh, for I, our I, show. I love, I love doing it, Angela. Thank you. <laughs> all right. And did you know that if you miss one of our live 9 a.m. talk shows, you can still listen to the conversation on my podcast? Each weekday, I talk with guests and take your phone calls about life in Minnesota. Search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts and then listen when it's convenient for you. Mm